Well, our sermon text this morning, we are continuing our study through 1 Timothy. We are at the end of chapter 3, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 16, uh, that will be our passage, and I'll invite you, if you're able to do so, to stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word this morning. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for giving us your word as a light to our feet and a lamp to our path, that by it especially you make known to us sinners the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, your Son. And we ask once again that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we've touched on this passage a number of times uh, with good reason as we've gone through the book, and that is because in a lot of ways, this is kind of the central passage of the letter. And the reason I say that is it gives us the occasion of the letter. In other words, it gives us the, uh, the circumstances that led to Paul writing it, and it gives us, more importantly, the purpose uh, for the letter, that is what he hoped to accomplish by sending it to Timothy, the occasion was that, uh, as, as normal as it sounds and as une- unexciting as it may sound, is that Paul was away. He had left Timothy there in Ephesus to kind of mind the store, so to speak, and uh, he had hoped to come back soon, verse 14, he mentions that, to help Timothy set things in order at that church. Uh, but he wrote these things just in case he was delayed in coming back to the church there in Ephesus. Now, we don't know... We have no way of knowing if Paul actually was delayed, and if he was, we don't know how long it might have been that he was delayed in returning to the church there in Ephesus, but we should be very grateful that in God's all-wise providence that somehow Paul sensed the probability of a delay, for if it wasn't for that perceived delay, we would not have this vitally important letter that teaches us so much about the church. There's a lot of things we would not know God could have given it to us some other way, of course, but if it weren't for the things that Paul writes here, we would have uh, very little knowledge of, of how things are to be done and ordered in the church. If not for that possible delay in returning, Paul might have just come back to Ephesus and told Timothy these things in person. He might have just said to himself, you know, I'll be there next week, and when I get there, I'll explain this stuff to Timothy and help him do everything, and it'll, it'll all be fine, but... Because Paul sensed a delay was imminent, he took the time to write these instructions to Timothy regarding the church and how we are to conduct ourselves in it. And you and I, and the church down through the years, through the centuries, because of that, we all had the benefit of these instructions that Paul has written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us. John Stott writes the following, both about the New Testament letters and about this one in particular, John Stott says, Thus, by a deliberate providence of God, the New Testament letters came to be written and have been preserved 
for the edification of the church in subsequent generations. If the apostles' directions regarding the doctrine, ethics, unity, and mission of the church had been uh, given only in oral form, the church would have been like a, a mapless traveler in a rudderless ship. But because the apostolic instructions were written down, we know what we would not otherwise have known, namely how people ought to conduct themselves in the church. And if Paul had just delivered these things in person, that would have been great for Timothy and that church, but we wouldn't have the instructions that we have now, which are so important to us as Christians in the life of the church. You know, in many, many uh, down through the years, I always, I'm always tempted to say in our day, well, it is in our day, but it's all through the history of the church. Many have felt the uh, freedom, which they shouldn't have felt, to disregard the things written down in the scriptures, especially the things about the church. You know, God has written these things for good reason, and we should take note of these things. And so think about what a blessed delay this must have been. Paul probably didn't feel like it was much of a blessing, but to us it is. What a kind providence of our God for the benefit of the church down through the centuries, even for us, that God gave this uh, to Paul, that he might have this delay. In fact, if you think about it, I'll let you read this on your own. This will be your homework. A similar delay in Paul's ministry may be in the providence of God, at least partly responsible for Paul writing the book of Romans. That great, that great explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you read on your own, Romans 1, verses 8 through 15, Paul tells them there, I have wanted to come see you, I have prayed, I have tried to come, and it hasn't worked, I'm paraphrasing, it hasn't worked out. And then what does he do? He writes this letter explaining the gospel to the people, the Christians in Rome, and how many, who knows how many millions of people have been converted on hearing the gospel from the book of Romans, and that may have been written because Paul couldn't get to Rome fast enough. He did eventually get there, of course. Well, think about that next time that God's all-wise and powerful providence throws a curveball into your best-laid plans. You know, there used to be a gospel tract that uh, started off something like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Sometimes, you know, we love us and have a wonderful plan for our lives too, and sometimes God throws us a curveball. Things don't go the way that we think they should go. Uh, but think about that next time that happens, that God knows what he's doing. And and who knows but God alone what good he has ordained to bring out of it in your life um, by what appears to you or may appear to you as an unfortunate delay or detour for your plans. Now we hope to look at, uh, Lord willing, three things this morning from our text the first thing we want to see is what Paul talks about there when he talks about the purpose of the letter, and that is right conduct in the church. We're going to look at right conduct in the church. Secondly, we're going to look at the true constitution or nature of the church. What is the church? And lastly, but not least, the great confession of faith of the church. So conduct in the church, the constitution of the church, and the confession of of the church. So the first of those three things that Paul gives us here in our text is the, is his intended purpose for the letter, which is concerned first and foremost with right conduct in the church. Look at verses 14 to 15. He says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, here it is, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God 
which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of, of the truth. Now, you've probably heard the saying. I know I've said it a number of times. Ben probably has heard me say it a number of times. Uh, there's a right way to do things and a what? And a wrong way. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. And Paul here, I think, wants to make sure Timothy understands, and us as well, the right way to do things uh, in the church, the right way to know how to behave in the household of God. And so simply put, in 1 Timothy as well as in 2 Timothy and Titus, the Apostle Paul gives us the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient instruction for life and ministry in the church. You know, God doesn't just say, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't just say, hey, everybody, I'm sending you, go make disciples of all the nations and you'll figure it out. You know, do, do whatever seems right to you. You know, the book of Joshua tells us different, doesn't it? God told Joshua in chapter 1, you know, this book of the law shall what? Not depart from your mouth. That's a weird way of saying, talk about it, think about it. Why? Because he had to be careful to do everything according to what God had told him. For then his way will prosper and he will have success. We just read in chapter 7 of them not doing the things that God said, not doing things all in accordance with the way God had told them. And what happened? That wasn't prosperity and success, was it? God gave them defeat to the point where they wanted to go back. You know, Joshua cried out to God and said, Why did you bring us up here in the first place? Why didn't we just be content? Why couldn't we just be content living across the Jordan? And of course, God God had mercy upon them and had other plans, but they had to learn the hard way to do things God's way and not, not their way. Everything in this epistle, this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, is given that you and I might have a right biblical understanding of the church's nature, the church's structure and purpose, and the church's task. You know, there's a treasure trove of infallible wisdom here for every pastor and overseer and every church member. And even if you're not a pastor or an elder or a deacon, most Christians are not called to those offices. Uh, God gives us these instructions that we all might be on, so to speak, the same page on how to do the work of the Lord, the Lord's way and not man's way. Paul's words here should inform and sharpen your understanding of the nature of the of the work of pastoral ministry, as well as your expectations of how things ought to be done in the church. You know, it's not just for the pastors and the elders of the church to understand these things. It's also helpful for everyone in the church to understand what is a pastor supposed to do? What is an elder supposed to do and not supposed to do? Uh, if we don't all, if we're not all on the same page on those things, it makes life in the church that much more difficult. Now, what kinds of things does Paul have in mind here when he talks about right conduct in the household of God? Now, think about what we already read. We talked about in, the, in this chapter, in this very chapter, in chapter three, at, at, at great length, Paul talks about the qualifications for the office of elder and overseer, and the qualifications for for the office of of deacon, and that is certainly part of what Paul had in mind about right conduct, or right the way to do the right the right things in the church. But think about what comes in the next three chapters, the last half of the book. In chapter four, Paul deals with Timothy, Timothy's own ministry as a pastor, how he was to teach the flock, both by doctrine and by example. He tells Timothy to quote verse fifteen of chapter four to immerse himself. There's a word to immerse himself in the public ministry of the Word of God. 
pour himself into them, throw himself headlong into that work, and how he needed to keep a close watch on himself and on the teaching or the doctrine, verse 16. So Paul says, teach everybody in doctrine and in life. Teach them and show them the way of faith. And then what does he do? Because of that, he tells him to keep a close eye on his doctrine and on his life, to watch himself and his teaching. Chapter 5, later on in the book, Paul tells Timothy how he was to conduct himself in ministry toward men and women of various ages in the church. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2, Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men and women of, excuse me, younger men and brothers as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. In other words, there's going to come a time in the life of an elder, an overseer, a pastor, where he's going to have to, if he's going to do his ministry correctly and faithfully, he's going to have to rebuke or correct just about anyone in the church. Older men, younger men. Older women, younger women. That's Think about that responsibility. But he tells them, as he to kind of use that phrase again, there's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way to do it. One of the wrong ways to do it is just to not do it. And that is something that happens, I think, more often uh, than it should in the church. Now, so notice Paul's telling Timothy what to expect. You are going to have to, Timothy, correct or rebuke members who fall into each one of those various categories, but there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. He tells Timothy later on in that chapter how to treat widows in the church, how to treat those in the church who are who have needs that they can't meet on their own. That's That takes up a bulk of chapter 5. The mercy ministry of the church, so to speak, takes up a bulk of that chapter. He tells them also how to treat the elders, the other elders in the church. He tells them in the letter how to how to spot those who are qualified, how to ordain them to office. Then he tells them how the elders are to be treated. He says in the latter half of chapter 5 that uh, they are to give double honor to those who rule well, and especially those who, who, who do what? Who labor in preaching and teaching. I always think about that word. That's That tells you it should be hard to do this job. It should not be an expectation of ease for it. He also tells us how to handle an accusation made against an elder. He gives him the good, the double honor part, but he also says, hey, accusations at times are going to come, and how should you, how should you handle them? He says that any accusation made against an elder or a pastor should only be accepted on the basis of what? The testimony of two or three witnesses. What's he saying? You know, we tend to think that it's something new to our age. That people are, uh, you know, they take they take after the evil one. They make accusations that are unfounded. They slander other people, even their pastors and elders in the churches. And he says, not not so fast. Two or three witnesses. That's an Old Testament uh, statute about only taking an accusation with two or three witnesses. He also says he was to take those accusations. What verse twenty one without partiality. You don't give the pastors and elders a pass because they're pastors and elders. You don't take an accusation on its, based on its face without other witnesses, but you also don't give them a pass just because of the office. 
He also says, and this might be the more frightening thing, that he is to publicly rebuke those who are found to be in scandalous sin. Verse 20. He says, rebuke the re- rebuke them in the presence of all. Why? That the rest may fear. Maybe we'd have some more fearful pastors and elders if, if we were doing that very thing. He also tells Timothy in verse 22, he says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, we just read in, in Joshua 7 about taking part in other sins. God judged the whole lot of them for the sins of the one. And what does Paul tell Timothy here? Don't don't be in a rush to lay hands. What's he? He's talking about ordaining a man to office. Don't be in such a hurry because what happens uh, if you do that and they fall into scandalous sin, you have part of the blame for that. When we don't take the qualifications for office seriously, bad things happen. And the, the history of the church bears sad testimony to that fact down through the centuries. To rush a man to the office of elder is to take some responsibility for that man's fall if he should disqualify himself later by some public scandal or sin. Chapter 6, the last chapter of the book, Paul exhorts Timothy to teach doctrine that, quote, accords with godliness. Verse 3, he warns himself, he warns Timothy and others against the danger of the love of money. Verses 6 through 10. He exhorts him to fight the good fight of the faith. Verse 12, and to guard the deposit of the faith that had been entrusted to him in verse 20. So in in short, in summary, this little short six-chapter epistle gives us plenty to chew on. It tells us how we might conduct ourselves rightly in the church, uh, and it's only only then, it's only right that we should take heed to these things, as it is ultimately, ultimately God's household. I think that's why he brings it up here. He reminds Timothy and reminds us what the church is. It's not your house, it's God's house. You know, we always tell our kids sometimes, you know, so someone else's house, their rules. If you go to a friend's house, whose rules do you have to follow? The people in that house. If, you have, if they tell you to take your shoes off, what do you do? You take your shoes off. Well, it's God's house and God's rules. And so it's God's household, it's God's church and not ours. And so the church is not ours to do with as we see fit. It just isn't. It's God's house, and so we follow his instructions regarding right conduct in the church. And that brings us to the second thing we see in our text, which is the true constitution or nature of the church. The true constitution or nature of the church. Look how Paul describes or refers to the church in our text. In verse 15, he calls the church what? The household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Uh, It's as if he can't emphasize to us strongly enough, when he calls the church the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, he's kind of piling on one term after the other. It's as if he can't emphasize to us strongly enough the vital importance and greatness of the church. We just read in our call to worship in Psalm 87, Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Well, that's, that's about God's church. It was about God's church in the Old Testament when it was originally written, but it's about God's church in general as well. And the church, which is, think about the things the Bible calls the church. The body of Christ. The, the bride of Christ. The bride of the Lamb. You know, the church, 
doesn't look like much now. Not just our church. Think about the most impressive church you can think of. I know it's not this one, but think of, I don't know, the buildings or whatnot. The most impressive church in this world really isn't much to, to look at. It's, it's really nothing impressive about it according to the world. But one day when you see the church in all her glory and splendor in Jesus Christ, you'll see the church for what she really is. Yeah, R.C. Sproul has a, a little book, maybe some of you have read it in the past. It's called Renewing Your Mind, and it's about the Apostles' Creed. I, I highly recommend it to you for your edification. It takes you through each line of the Apostles' Creed, and there's a line about the church in the Apostles' Creed, and, and Sproul writes this. The church is the most important organization in the world. The church is the most important organization in the world. It is the target of every demonic, hostile attack in the universe. Jesus personally guaranteed that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. He made no guarantee that the gates of hell would not be unleashed against it, however. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, but the gates of hell will try. The gates of hell will try to do that. Now think about that. If the church was nothing as most people in the world think of it as, most people don't even give the church a second thought. But if the church was nothing, if the church didn't have glorious things spoken of her in Jesus Christ, why would the devil and the world spend so much time attacking the church? It's because they know, the, in a weird way, they know the nature of the church better than we do. Satan knows what the church is. His forces know how great the church is and how dangerous and powerful the church is with the Holy Spirit working in and through us for Christ's glory. You know, sometimes people talk about mega churches. Maybe you've seen one or been to one. Usually a mega church is a church that's uh, extremely large in number and size and, and facilities, as if that somehow makes them more important than smaller churches. You might know the average church size in our country is under 100 members. So we're in pretty good company. We're, no, we're far below that. But the average size of a church is around 90 in our country. But think about this. Every true Christian church, regardless of size and number, if you think about the church rightly, every true church is a megachurch. Now why is that? Because every true church, and not all churches are true churches, every true church is where you'll find the Lord Jesus Christ at work. That's what makes a church. That's what makes a megachurch, so-called. The church is what the Lord Jesus Christ himself purchased with his own blood. It is the church that he has promised to build and defend so that the very gates of hell can never prevail against it. That The church, that is where Jesus saves sinners and transforms lives and families and changes the world. You could say that, I often jokingly say this, our little church is a micro-megachurch. It's still a megachurch because God is at work. And so I ask you this morning, you know, do you want to be part of something big? Everybody does. If you're honest, everybody wants to be something, part of something important or big. If you want to be part of something big and you're a believer in Jesus Christ and a member of a local church, then you already are a part of something big. You are part of the most important organization in the world to use Sproul's Phrase. Even small, unimpressive, all too ordinary churches are the most important organizations in the world. Now look at the phrases Paul uses to describe the church in our text. 
First, in verse 15, he says the church is, quote, the household of God. You know, if that was all Paul said, that would be more than enough. That might be the most impressive thing about the church you read in our text. The church is the house or household of God. The Greek word there that is translated household can also just be translated, and some translations do render it, just as house. House or household. Those two terms are often used kind of interchangeably in the scriptures. Uh, Think about Joshua. We haven't gotten there yet, but in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, where Paul tells the Israel, or where Joshua rather tells the Israelites, he says, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and what? As for me and my house, we will serve whom? The Lord. You can serve, you better make up your mind, he's saying. You can serve those false gods that you, that you saw before you crossed the Jordan or you can worship these false gods that you found after we crossed, but as for me and my house, his household, him and his family, we were going to serve the Lord, he says. Joshua's house represented all those who dwelt in his house, his family or his household. And Paul uses that very same word to refer to the church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the household or family of God. That is something that cannot be said of any other organization in the world. Think about, I won't ask you to to blurt them out or raise your hand or anything, but think about what you perceive, what we often perceive of as important organizations. And there's nothing wrong with those things, but think think about the most important organization you can think of. As great as that thing may be, and not saying there aren't some good ones, none of them are the household of God except the church. None of them are the family of God except the church. The second term Paul uses here in verse 15, he calls the church, the church of the living God. The church of the living God. And saying it this way, he is distinguishing the church from every other religion and religious group gathering or place of worship in the world. Others may have their religions, many do. Many, many of those religions have large followings. They might have impressive buildings and assets. But their gods are what? They're nothing but false gods. And to say that their gods are false gods is to say, simply put, that they are nothing. They are nothing. The false gods and false religions of this world, no matter how big, no matter how numerous they are in number, they serve, well, they serve Satan, but they serve nothing. They serve no true God. If you are a Christian this morning by faith in Jesus Christ and a part of his church, You are part of the church of the living God, the true and living God, in other words. There's plenty of false gods in the world, but only one true and living God who created all things, sustains all things, and made the way of salvation by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They serve false gods, but not you. If you're a Christian this morning, you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You are part of God's family if you're a part of God's church. There's only one true and living God, and so to be a part of his church is to be a part of God's own family. Now, think about our current circumstances. It may be kind of helpful to remind us of what the word church means. Ecclesia, uh, people talk about ecclesiastical things. It comes from the Greek word for church, just, just ecclesia. Many have said uh, that it means something like the called out ones. 
because it, it has some kind of reference to the person who would cry out to gather an assembly, and there may be some truth to that. But the word church at its most basic level refers to the assembly of God's people. It refers to the gathered church, not just the church in some kind of abstract way. And so for all the recent talk about what is and is not essential in our country, uh, the church is essential. And that, that is true, but that means each and every member of the church is essential to the church. And that means at least in some ways the church is not really the church unless she is gathered together on the Lord's Day. Now there's exceptions to that rule. There are people that cannot come. We, we prayed for them, uh, some of those who are stuck at home even now. But the church at its most essential is the gathered, assembled church. And so, with all due respect to those who would set limits on these things, uh, when we had this COVID lockdown and whatnot, well, they, well, just gather those who are essential to your service. I would say, well, we can't do that unless everyone's there. A church is not a pastor and a piano. A church is the gathered church, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ on his day in his house. That brings us to the third and final phrase that Paul uses to refer to the church in our text. He calls the church a pillar a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, in some ways, that gives us a picture also of the essential nature of the church. The church is to stand firm in the truth of God. She's called to support and defend the truth against all manner of error and false teaching and false gospels. Now, pillar and buttress, some of you have some involvement in construction or have done some work in that regard. Both those things are kind of structural construction kind of terms. They paint a picture of the church giving support to or or holding the truth in place. And think about uh, you know when you're building a house, they, they'll put things up around it uh, to support it while things are being put up. That's kind of what the church is pictured of as here. Now the church, the church is not herself the truth. The church herself does not get to decide what the truth is. The church does not get to innovate and improve on the truth, much less change the truth. The truth is what it is, and the church uh, is made what she is by the truth, not the other way around. You know, there are many churches, the Roman Catholic Church and others, who who seek to, they, they seem to think that they have the, the right to say what the truth is. It's not the case. The truth makes the church and not vice versa. In fact, in the very next chapter of this letter, in the verses right after our text, the opening verses of chapter 4, Paul reminds Timothy that the Spirit expressly says, he writes, that in later times, some will depart from what? The faith by, devi- by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings or doctrines of demons. The church is the, pil- is the pillar and buttress of the truth, uh, but many want nothing to do with it. Many follow doctrines of demons. That's, that's why I think Timothy, Paul goes to such great lengths to, to impress upon him the importance of teaching sound doctrine that accords with godliness and to guard the deposit that had been entrusted to him later on in chapter 6, verse 20. You know, the church, you know, many, many tend to say that in our day, and maybe, maybe they've always said this, the church, they say, we should just avoid doctrine. Because doctrine divides. Doctrine offends people. But the church should not avoid doctrine. The church should make it her aim to teach sound doctrine, to make the whole counsel of God known, and to be in every way a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
One of our callings as a church, as a true church, is to support and uphold the truth of God from His Word. And think about this. If people cannot find the truth of God in the church, where on earth can they possibly hope to find it? What's plan B? Does God have a plan B? No, He works primarily through His church. And if people can't find the truth of God, if the truth of God is not upheld, especially the gospel itself, if we don't uphold the truth of the gospel in the church, no one will. You know, this, in a couple Sundays, we're gonna, we're gonna celebrate, we usually do every, every year, kind of the, the anniversary of the, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Usually the last Sunday in October, it's the closest one to October 31st, is Reformation Sunday. Well, here I think we can see one of the reasons why that Reformation was so important back then. And it's had lasting effects to our day. It was Luther and Calvin and many others trying to be a pillar and supporter, buttress to the truth of God. That is the church's calling. Well, that brings us to the third and the last thing that we see in our brief text, which is the great confession of the church. You know, I've read, uh, I, I've read this letter, I don't know how many times before I started preaching through it. And for years I used to read verse 16 and wonder why it was there. I read it and thought, how does that fit with what Paul just said? You know, uh, sometimes uh, we go on tangents or rabbit trails. I knew I do in, in readings and in the pulpit and whatnot. You've probably noticed. And so I, for years I would read this and go, is this like a, a divine rabbit trail? I mean, it's scripture. God put it here for a reason, but how does it fit? I thought it was some kind of a, a non, non sequitur, but this quotation that, that Paul gives us here, which many have, have thought to be from an early church creed or hymn, it fits perfectly. It's the perfect illustration of what he just said to Timothy about the church being the pillar or buttress of the truth. Because what's one of the ways that we are a pillar and buttress of the truth but by our confessions, by the confessions of the faith that we hold forth and, and, and confess together? Look at verse 16. He says, Great indeed we confess. That word is there for a reason. Confess is the mystery of godliness. He, that's Christ, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The mystery of godliness is, is it's, a, it's a brief confession of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what this this one verse is. It's a mystery in that it was hidden for years and ages past and only made manifest or revealed by God in the gospel in all of its fullness when the fullness of time had come, according to Galatians 4, verse 4. In other words, this mystery is now made known, and why is it made known? Because God himself has revealed it to us in the gospel of his Son. Now notice what this confession focuses on, as brief as it is. What is, what is the central thing of the Christian faith? It's Christ. It's Christ himself. It focuses on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Much like the Apostles' Creed, you know, we, we recite that every first or, you know, every other first Sunday of the month. We recite the Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed together. Um, you know, just like the Apostles' Creed, what does this creed do? It, it takes us from beginning to end in, in rapid fashion of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. It starts with his incarnation, where Paul says he was manifested in the flesh. The Son of God made 
man. It goes to his death and resurrection. It's very briefly stated when it says, vindicated by the Spirit, he's talking about his resurrection from the dead after his crucifixion. Romans 1.4 talks about the same thing, that he was declared with power to be the Son of God. How? By the resurrection of the dead. He was vindicated or justified by the Spirit. He was being proclaimed among the nations, Paul says, and believed on in the world. Just as the gospel began to spread to the very ends of the earth from Pentecost onward until Christ's glorious ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where Paul writes at the end, taken up in glory. So from Christ's incarnation there in Bethlehem to his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, that's all summarized in very brief form in this little creed or part of a creed or hymn that Paul quotes here. You know, there is a a foolishness in the church sometimes where people say things like, no creed but Christ. No creed but the Bible. That sounds great, but no creed but Christ is quite a creed. There is a world of doctrine in the doctrine of Christ that Paul confesses here. We could spend weeks unpacking this one verse and not come to the bottom of it. The very first line, he was manifested in the flesh. God in the flesh. The Son of God made flesh. Why was he made flesh? How was he made flesh? How can God be made manifest in the flesh? It's one of the great mysteries of the gospel. That the infinite God who created all things, you know, it says that God made all things through his Son, and without him nothing was made that was made, and yet... He was born of Mary and was raised uh, as a child and grew in wisdom and stature until he laid down his life for our sin. Even in this brief creed or confession that Paul cites here in our text uh, has a, a world of doctrine in it. Even God himself manifested in the flesh in the person of Christ. And this little brief quotation that Paul gives, I think it's an argument for us, or it it provides us with an argument for using creeds, for using confessions of faith as long as they are biblical. He gives us an example to do just, just that. May God work in us what's pleasing in his sight that we might also, as he, as Paul told Timothy here, might conduct ourselves in godliness in his church, that we might order all things according to God's holy word, that we might do all things in accordance with the true constitution or nature of the church as the household of God and the pillar and buttress of the truth and that we might maintain the good confession of Jesus Christ together in this world till God calls us home. Amen.